This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. What's up, everybody? I don't know why I'm so excited. Today. You are you are starting the podcast today like you are a 1980s CB radio trucker. <laughs> What's up, everybody out there on the road? We got a bear in the grass taking pictures up on the <laughs> I-95. Um, all right, Danielle, we are we gotta get right into our mailbag for this week because it is so awesome. This was a hard one, but I, I feel like you know I want to get into it. I'm excited because we have a question that's so wild we needed to bring a guest on to help us with. Yes. we. I think we were both uh, mystified, maybe is the word, by this question. I think we brought in the exact right person to help answer this. So this is someone we've wanted to be on the pod for a while. Oh my gosh. I could not... I've been talking about getting this guest for like months. six months, six months. to eight months. It's been months. So I'm just excited that's finally happening. I mean, you should see the texts, people. I wake up and it's like, is today the day? Are we going to get this guest? <laughs> we love her. Yes. This person, I'm, I'm lucky enough to call a friend, but I'm also a fan. She is so smart, so funny, so wonderful. Guys, it's... It's Julie Klausner, the creator. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) We're so happy to have you here. I couldn't help but interrupt your introduction. I was just so excited. I felt felt like you're holding me back on my leash. And I was like, let me jump up on them. Let me jump up on them. Let me jump up on them. And now I'm licking both of your faces because I'm I'm so I'm so happy to be in your in your territory, your domain. We are so amped. And look, you're kind enough to have both of us as a guest on your wonderful podcast, Double Threat Podcast, that that Julie does with Tom Sharpling. And you're a fan of movies like no one I've ever met. Fan of movies, and I'm a fan of you too, like like nobody's business. And it was not, it was not a kindness. It was a manipulative power move. (laughs) (laughs) Let let me give you credit where credit's due. Yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) I gotta tell you, when we were on Double Threat, like after that episode came out, truly, and this is not, I'm not fluffing you here. Uh, the coolest people in my life texted me and was like, Ooh. I heard you on Double Threat. And I was like, oh shit. Like, <laughs> the, I've arrived. The coolest, people, Fuck yeah. the coolest people in your life, the proclaimers. Are you friends with the <laughs> proclaimers? <laughs> I'm trying to think who could the coolest people be. The and I'm thinking of those two guys. Have you seen the proclaimers lately? I'm Google googling. Google it now. I have I have not seen it. Oh, the proclaimers. I mean, they they were it was a little rough and tumble to begin with. Well, that was also just the like you guys don't know how to be 
older than you are. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I'm always a fan of like skinny guys that kind of grow into bodies where they're like, what the hell is this? I'm literally Googling proclaimers yes. today. Proclaimers they, they now. <laughs> do they still have the same head jerk movements like in sync? That's like the one Absolutely. thing I remember. That was their move. The head jerks in sync. <laughs> that was all the dance. They danced from the neck up like nobody was watching. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I see them. I see them. It's like uh, Greg Proops. Um, <laughs> Greg, if you had a little, if you, had t- you know, mirror vision and Greg Proops, they're two Proopses. <laughs> <laughs> double proofs. It's yeah, double wild. Proofs. Yeah, that, um, it is wild. Well, we did. We did actually. I mean, we know you're extra- extraordinarily busy, so we did actually want to have you here so that we could have you help us answer a question. Yes, hiding my jigsaw puzzle from the background. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna get you one of those. Uh, does Jimmy play with the puzzle pieces? Because yes. I have a, a solution for that for you. What is it? There's a, it's like a little table you can get. It's almost like the kind of thing that you would set like a a computer monitor on. Ooh, like a a puzzle table? It's a puzzle, but it's not even a table. It's like a little tiny thing you put on a tabletop and it has drawers for the pieces. Oh my god. And then a roll-up thing for the mat. So if you it's like a cat-proof puzzle thing. So now I know what to I'm get. I'm very you. into this, although it sounds exactly like something that a cat would be like, "Oh, a stage." <laughs> oh, thank you for getting me this challenging box that yeah. I can spend hours destroying. Right now, I can project to the back rows. <laughs> oh, a stage! Yeah. And then, next thing you know, Jimmy's just riding it like a Zumba, like or like a Roomba around the <laughs> around the room. <laughs> just toss it off he's puzzle put, pieces. He's put the puzzle table on top of the Roomba. <laughs> And he's giving like an oratory to the to the dust bunnies. Well, we are going to ask you this question come hell or high water, because I didn't know how to answer it. Millie, do you know how to answer it? I think I have a bad answer for it. But, you know, obviously I will defer to our special guests for this. Yeah, but we'll um, we'll jump in if we we can. But I don't have I've got nothing, y'all. So our question is the question actually is for for us. It was hi, Millie and Danielle. I love, love, love your podcast, and it introduced me to so many fabulous movies. Three Women and Clute was my gateway episode. Every year, I host an Easter party that's a bit irreverent. We usually have a double feature with lots of good food and drinks. Past Easter's, we've screened Brotherhood of the Wolf, The Color Purple, Night of the Comet, G.I. Blues, and April Fool's Day. This year, I want to show The Fisher King, but I'm at a loss coming up with another movie to bookend it. What would you suggest, Kathleen? Now, two things are sticking out to me, which I love. One, we have a guest who does not celebrate Easter answering this question. And two, it is so (laughs) far past Easter that (laughs) this is going to be a next year experiment. So I love all of that. It's like people who celebrate Christmas in the in July. What's like the halfway point between Easter? Right. It would be like October, Halloween. November. <laughs> Easter yeah. and November. So this don't make is me your, do math. Don't make yeah, me do math for this question. Don't hold me to that math. But Kathleen, yes. this will be good for you for next April. I also I hope that, like Kathleen just listed the movies, but I hope that the color purple and Night of the Comet were a double feature secretly <laughs> in my heart. <laughs> okay, I have to ask about an irreverent Easter party. Like, that's crazy. But then 
those weren't the double features, right? So she wasn't no. saying these movies in a row to be like, here are the double features, right? She no. just, these are just listed movies. the first movie. Because <laughs> that, just- that list is fucked up, I gotta say. There's a lot of weird shit on that list. It's confusing halfway through the color purple to be like, this is still a party? <laughs> <laughs> no! An irreverent Easter party with the color purple. Yeah. By the time Oprah's beating Harpo in the streets, like, how do you have room for more cocktails and cheese? <laughs> I mean, you're <laughs> defeated. I also, now, I don't know about you, Julie, but I am, I don't have, I'm not like a person who pairs movies with seasonal events or like holidays. Right. right. And I don't know if that's something that you do. Like, do you have a, a specific movie that you watch at a specific time of year? I mean, I, I think that's a great question. Like, I think that, I remember watching at least the Mystery Science Theater episode of Santa Claus around Christmas. Um, and then um, this sounds snotty, but like I like watching The Apartment around Christmas because That's I think it's snotty. one of the, well, I don't know. It's a black and white movie and you you want to be like, I, I try to. I, I, tr- I try to make my recommendations at least like trash adjacent because otherwise I feel like I'm being kind of a, a, a dingus. But like um, every Christmas I tuck in and watch the crudes. See, that's sort of that's that's what I I wish that were closer to what I want my brand to be. Um, but no, no, the apartment to me is is such a um, I, I just don't think anyone has ever gotten like holiday based suicide like yeah. as right as they did on that like I, I just think that was like th- we just sort of haven't gotten anything quite as real so so that for sure but I would also say like Jesus Christ Superstar is the ultimate Easter movie I'm I'm um you know if, if I were gonna have like an irreverent Easter party I would absolutely throw that in there I cannot agree could not agree more I think that that would be tops of the list. And what would you like? What could you you compare it with anything? Jesus Christ Superstar. Well, Last Temptation of Christ. Um, oh boy. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I would say, um, you know, for, like leaning into the word party, I would pair it with Beyond the Valley of the Dolls because I recently learned that Marsha McBroom is one of the dancers in Superstar, um, who played Pet in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. So I would just turn it into like you know, a McBroom celebration, which I think we should replace Easter with anyway. (laughs) Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Marsha McBroom, true, you know, true icon, true legend. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I keep wondering, like, is there a good, is Company a good movie for any holiday and why is it for the anniversary of your parents' divorce? (laughs) (laughs) Wait, wait, is this a question? (laughs) Yeah. My parents are divorced? I thought, just a thought in the in the, the form of a question like my parents are divorced, which is why they get along because they're both each other's <laughs> second marriage. Was that the question? Am I doing okay on the show so far? Because <laughs> I do have the because I do have an answer to not to like bring it back to um, Kathleen's. It was Kathleen, right? Yeah. I I, I mean I as soon as I I I, I know the answer. Like I know Tell the us. answer. The answer the answer is Crazy People, starring Dudley Moore and Daryl Hannah. Yes, yes. That's the answer. Because the Fisher King, Danielle loves it. I just love that anyone mentioned Dudley Moore in 2022. Well, <laughs> that's why she's a guest. This is why you're the, the crazy, crazy people takes what the Fisher King did and brings it to this, like, 
oh, you want to make fun of mentally ill people? <laughs> like, let's <laughs> yeah. go. Let's go. You think they're just magical and quirky? Well, they can also, like, sell products. I mean, you you are familiar with crazy people. Oh, being... yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm laughing because it is actually a perfect answer. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, because this is this is a family party also, I'm assuming. It's like mostly family, maybe a couple of friends. I, I don't care if children are there or they're, they're going to have to learn <laughs> about crazy people at some point. Um, the premise of crazy people, Danielle, would you like to explain the premise of crazy no, people? By, no, please take Millie, this ball have you, and run Millie, with have it. you seen crazy people? Uh, I have not, actually. So You're coming to Easter. You're coming to Easter next year. <laughs> Crazy People is about um, Dudley Moore, who is an ad executive who goes through, like, I believe he goes through some sort of midlife crisis. So he ends up in a mental institution. And while he's there, he learns that, like, mentally ill people who are in, you know, psychiatric hospitals are the best copywriters because they just say exactly what the thing is. So there's an ad for a horror movie and they'll be like, it won't just scare you. It'll fuck you up for life. And <laughs> And I don't remember if this was a joke in it, but it was something like Pepsi, fuck Coke or whatever it was. Like It was just like very, very blunt ad copy was the entire game of that movie. And it and and it turns out they were really good at it. And the reason why I think I think about that movie all the time is because there's a scene where Dudley Moore goes home and like the mental patients have lost their mojo and they still have to come up with pitches and they pitch to the um executives of sony electronics do you know this scene danielle i think yeah. i showed this clip at like a, how was your week live so they're like they're completely catatonic they're the you know the idea being that they're all like you know not doing well and so they're making this presentation to the like president of sony and the, the one of the patients goes sony and then they turn a page and it's a picture of a skeleton he goes bony <laughs> The idea being that that's not a good ad, but in retrospect, that is the best ad I've ever. It's per. It's. I mean, I'm all. I'm buying Sony for life. <laughs> Based on that clip from that movie alone. Oh, that movie is such a great suggestion. So anyway, yeah. So Fisher King. I actually saw Fisher King for the first time recently. I had like a a Terry Gilliam, like one, not 180, like I'd say like 260 because I still kind of find him, like I'm I'm getting better as I get older, like straddling my relationship to things that I still believe or suspect are in bad taste. And I think Terry Gilliam's like sense of humor is definitely that. Like I think that there are some certain things he does like you know, so, so beautifully, but I just always like having grown up with Monty Python, I was always mm -hmm. sort of repelled by all the wide angle lens and all the grotesqueries of like, you know, women's bodies. And then like, you know, look yeah. at this like woman who's, you know, not skinny in a wide angle lens. And isn't that fascinating and funny? And um, right. it took me a while to like, you know, get into uh, or, or like enjoy Brazil. And then I was like, oh, okay, I dig Brazil. I saw Time Bandits. I was like, eh. and then Fisher King. I thought um, there's <laughs> there's definitely things in it that are you know really great, and then there are other things that are you know super 
cringy, but yeah. um, but he's a he's a strong flavor. Like he's like you know Frank Zappa or like Forbidden Zone, <laughs> which are like yeah. very very they're they're you know you're you're like whether or not I'm enjoying this, I can't say it's good, or whether it's good, I can't say right. I'm enjoying this. But but there is a matter of like taste to straddle, and especially with matters of like homelessness, mental illness. Um, yeah. you know, like sh- sh- random acts of violence. Like he's not the most sensitive. <laughs> it's it's gonna no. be it's gonna be glib. So my relationship with this movie is sort of like nation, but it's also forming. I am. I, we're both big fans, Millie and I, of like going back and rewatching things. And so I, I'm, I'm really interested that you saw the Fisher King for the first time, but that you're yeah. kind of revisiting Terry Gilliam's work as a whole genre unto itself yeah because you're right like you have you kind of form like my opinion of him was never really solid because I was kind of like I did the same thing where I would pick and choose a movie here and there and think well it's good or it made me think or I don't know but maybe it's just maybe it's me because everyone loves his stuff but I think that that's you're absolutely right like that's a movie that I'm really curious as to whether or not it holds up so to speak because it really He's not trying to be sensitive at any moment in time that he's making films. But that's what Robin Williams is there for. Like he's there to right. be the human being. And that scene with the with the date where the four of them are on that date is really it, that is really moving. Um, yeah. So there, but there is something to like. Robin Williams will do the legwork of actually having like the beating human heart at the center of this, you know, wildly, um, you know, misanthropic like. Yeah. about you know how people are basically garbage and um it, it is it is very cartoonish but you know robin williams man like that guy is a beating heart in front of the camera i'm gonna rewatch it because let me tell you that my grandmother who again fully has dementia is like has great days she yeah. loves going back to things that she's already seen i cannot tell you how many times over the past couple of months we've watched mrs doubtfire <laughs> And it's it's like the first time every time she sees it, and then we'll start watching, and she'll, she'll see Harvey Firestein and be like, "Oh, this is that movie." And I'm like, "Yes, it's still that movie." Yes. But she loves Robin Williams, and I think it's for that reason that he does something connective in his work. Yeah, he's a really soulful person and a really soulful actor. He's. Um... What do you think of that movie, Millie? What do you think of the of of Terry Gilliam? Well, you know, I have I actually haven't seen the Fisher King. I guess since probably the 90s. Yeah. Because it came out in like 91 or something. Um, so it's pro- it was, it's been a long time. But I, I to that end, though, to what you guys are just talking about, about an actor who is able to make a slightly problematic role slash film like a little bit more palpable or something like I, I think Robert Williams is actually like a perfect example of somebody who does that pretty well because I just watched I rewatched I think we talked about this in a couple episodes ago but I, I just rewatched The Birdcage and oh, I love I The Birdcage love that movie, oh my but god there's this I mean but there's this thing where you're going like oh well here you know you have this like straight cis actor who's playing a gay role and that you know we're starting to talk about that a little bit more now but his his role in that movie is so good like he's so um thoughtful and complicated you know what i mean and he has this like he's he's like not because i think that everybody sees that his whole like madonna madonna part and thinks oh that's him he's just doing his thing but when you like actually sit down and watch that movie you're like man he's like really good in that like 
he's dramatic and he's thoughtful and, it, you know, he's like sad. Uh, and I just like, I really started to think like, I mean, I've always thought this because I've loved Robin Williams forever, but I'm just saying like, after I saw it again, I was like, wow. You know? Yeah, he was something else. So what we're saying, Kathleen, is double feature What Dreams May Come and Patch Adams. You can't go wrong. <laughs> well, listen, I actually, okay. I've never seen Patch Adams. <laughs> Patch Adams. Now that I actually haven't seen. And that happened around the same time. Did that happen around the same time as Good Morning Vietnam or am I making that No, up? no, Good Morning no. Vietnam was 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 much earlier Which not, much, you know, okay it was a decade earlier at least okay i don't know why i thought that movie came out a lot earlier than it actually did i'm gonna, I'm gonna change my answer from patch adams to awakenings much better robin williams in a hospital okay maybe that's the movie that i'm thinking of it's awakenings and patch adams <laughs> what about jacob the liar if we're going full like <laughs> jacob the liar this is we're gonna do Jacob the Liar, Life is Beautiful, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. We'll just do all, <laughs> all just like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> no one's ever coming to Easter again, and I love it. But Millie, you were gonna say something. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly how to be like more hard boiled eggs for me. <laughs> no, no, I was like thinking, oh, what movie could actually go with this this Fisher King thing? And I was like. And I haven't seen this in literally since it came out, so I have no idea if it actually fits. But that movie, Don Juan DeMarco, do you remember when that movie came out? With Brando. Absolutely. And Brando and Depp. And, and Depp, who's wrongly accused on trial, and I pray <laughs> for him every minute, and I've been watching the live stream, and what is his accent? I'm obsessed with his speaking I voice. I was watching it today, being like, what is this? I'm obsessed Obsessed. I was in I was in a writer's room and the showrunner this is a couple years ago and the showrunner had this running joke where we tried to get into the show it never got into the show um about Johnny Depp's smelly rings and like what his hand must smell like oh god those, those like those those gummy bracelets and and yes. well I thought he was completely bald because that's why he wore like 75 you know like head cover he would wear a scarf yeah. and a hat and a cap, you know, and a bonnet. He went full Brett Michaels. Yeah, totally, totally. And and anyway, but yes, Don Juan DeMarco is very important. It's a very important, <laughs> like, colorful, mental, like, who are the real inmates? You know, maybe we're <laughs> yes. the crazy ones. Like, maybe the man with imagination is the, the, the sane one, you know? I, I don't think I've seen this movie. I don't think oh, I've seen you'll, this. You'll remember it when I tell you that it was, it had a slamming, jamming hit from Brian Adams, and it was kind of this like Spanish flamenco guitar <gasps> song, and, and it was really like love yeah. a woman. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> tell me if you ever really. Yeah. Yes. All right. And, I know the song. I don't know the movie. Well, but I love it's, this. It's crazy. You have to see it. <laughs> Basically, Johnny Depp is in a mental institution because he thinks he's Don Juan. And then I think by the end, you're like, isn't he, though? I think that's <laughs> the premise. And I forget, is, is Marlon Brando, what is his role in it his, again? He's his psychiatrist. Brando no. plays his psychiatrist. Do you yes. imagine checking into an institution, you're at your lowest. They, they jack you up on medication. All you're eating is applesauce. They take away your socks. <laughs> You've got a rubber blanket. You have, you have a rubber blanket. You can't tie your hair up with anything. 
And then all of a sudden they're like, okay, it's time for you to meet your doctor. And then you hear like, how's it going? And then he like lifts his head because it's just all you see is a hat. And he like lifts his head up and he's like, I mean, that in its own... They shouldn't even be called Don Juan DeMarco. It'd be called Marlon Brando. It could be Marlon Brando, the psychologist. It's so crazy. Uh, If that was how that movie was marketed, I would have seen it. Truly. Yeah, it would be great if he played, like, Dr. Moreau, like, as a crossover. Like, Dr. Moreau got a job, but it's like, yeah, it's record now. Absolutely. We finally got him. Totally. We got him off that island. We got him off the island. You guys have seen that documentary about the making of the island of Dr. Moreau. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, good, good. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Why are men allowed to make movies? (laughs) (laughs) That's what I keep saying. Listen, I I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but like every winter, I just fall. Winter is for misinjury. I just fall into it every winter, (laughs) naturally, just like my seasonal depression. Yeah, and I just don't understand why why we let men do anything. Truly, anything. What I would do for seasonal depression. <laughs> it's stacked. It's like yeah. a um okay. like a oh, s'mores. Okay. It's like okay. So it's like the graham cracker depression base is always there. Uh-huh. But then I, you know, around October I add a little chocolate. Mm-hmm. Then around mm-hmm. December, here comes the marshmallow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have well seasoned depression. I have Mrs. Dash. <laughs> Mrs. Dash depression. My depression is like old bay. It goes with old everything. Bay. <laughs> old bay's back. I'm trying to think of other like quirky mental patient. Like, cause is I never saw Benny in June, but is that another like Johnny Depp like oh, kind yeah. of he's crazy, but is he? he well in that one thing? he thinks he's Buster Keaton. Oh. Yeah. Cause the the rolls and the forks. Yep. Yes, I remember this. Oh God, how precious. Yeah. How ninety that nineties nineties twee like very early twee, yeah. I, it's, it's it was two. Twi- he was he's on a swing going past a window in slow motion with the hair. But it's almost like Tim Burton twee, not you know like Westy. Because yes. I was when we were talking about Terry Gilliam, I'm like, if someone said I I'm going to show you like a Terry Gilliam movie or a Wes Anderson movie either way you're going to be you know in someone else's head that is just yes. very very specific about his work I mean I guess it depends on like you know what you're in the mood for but lately I would probably take Gilliam if only because <laughs> yeah. I don't know like at least there's I, I, I don't know I, I there's a it's a different kind of Horrible, I guess. Not that Wes Anderson is horrible. There's a couple of movies I really like, but I didn't see his yeah. new one because it just seems so anodyne. I, I just oh, I, I, I hate to say it. I, I like Same. I put it on and I was texting within yeah. 10 yeah, minutes. Yeah. yeah. It's just like they just switch out the players, but it's the same story. So whoever, like yeah. Timothy Chalamet is in it now because he's right. hot. And then it's right. just... What now, do you guys is, think of Timothy Chalamet? Do you like him? I'm. I'm not... I'm not of the age group. Remember uh, when I got more popcorn when we saw that movie? Okay, one of my favorites. Millie, do you know this story? <laughs> no. I have several favorite stories about hanging out with Julie, naturally. <laughs> but top of the list for many years now, it has yet to be beaten. We went to see... <laughs> we went to see Call Me By Your Name. Uh-huh. <laughs> About a half an hour before the movie ends, less Julie looked over at me. Yeah. And she says, oh, yeah. I'm going to get popcorn, and she gets up. <laughs> no, no, wait, wait. Actually.
initially it was, I'm going to the bathroom. And I was like, okay. And then she comes back with popcorn. Like 10 minutes later, and I'm like, the movie's ending. She missed the crying scene. Like, <laughs> the dad crying. crying. Yes. I, no, no, oh, I came no. back. I came back. Um, like right at that Michael scene. Stolberg. Michael Stolberg? Yeah. He, he was doing his monologue. I was like, crunch. <laughs> and then the credits came up, and I was like, ah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it was the best movie going moment of it my life. It was so boring. I was so bored. <laughs> I, me too. I'm like, oh my God, just fuck already or something. My yeah. God. Because I peed and I was like, mm, oh my God. Yeah. yeah. I, she was gone for like 10 minutes. I'm like, what gone. is she just like, like just wandering around no, the I lobby? I wouldn't have done that to you. I wouldn't have done that to you. <laughs> I wouldn't have done that to you. But yeah, no, he's, he's a, he's not my type. I, I'm not, I'm not. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. I like. Listen, the, the you know me. Like I talk about Stacy Keach as a heartthrob. <laughs> There's no way Chalamet is on the radar. It's just not possible. Uh, and and no. good for him, and for the P, and for the kids, you know. But for me, it's a no. You know. Oh, well, we've already been there. We've already had that that crush, that like weird art guy crush. We've already done it. I don't yeah. need another version of that. Yeah. yeah. But I also look. I want to say since Night of the Comet came up in Kathleen's email, I don't know Night of the Comet. Let me look it up. Oh, okay. We're we're gonna have. So when you come up to visit, we're gonna have a Night of the Comet, Benny and June. <laughs> what? That sounds like a feature. threat. This sounds like a threat. <laughs> Oh, Valley Girls and Cannibal Zombies. Okay, that's yes. fun. It could be, unless it's really sexist. It's 80s and bad. It's not as sexist as you would think for an 80s film. Right. It's not like Amazon Women on the Moon. No. Okay. No, and they're kind of... The Night of the Comet, P.S., is the only movie I have ever said to my agent, who owns the rights to that? Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. And it's some dude. And the the answer is, yeah, the guy at 7-Eleven or exactly. some, yeah, yeah, some yeah. guy down the road. But I do think that, like, I like the schlocky oh, kind of. This is of... super fun. I'm looking at the Wikipedia. This looks like, this looks like a, this looks like a hoot. This looks like a party movie. Completely. So I feel like that's also a good avenue to go down for, for Kathleen is like any more schlocky kind of horror movie suggestions well you know i i don't know this i feel like this was tough she might have to get a little experimental with her double features especially to pair with the fisher king i will say um she might have to you know take a take a back door for a double feature we've got a whole year to to, to check in and to come up <laughs> with more suggestions so if we think of more we'll let you know but jeff jeff bridges mercedes rule won the oscar for it right yeah yes. mercedes rule that's a good yeah she's person. incredible um, yeah. And Jeff Bridges mm-hmm. is amazing in it. He also, I'm trying to think of other connective tissue. Like he plays a shock jock. Um, I don't think talk radio should be paired with anything uh, more than, yeah, my, <laughs> my crush on, as Eric Bogosian gets older, he is just getting hotter by this. Oh, oh my God. Have you, he looks. In succession. Am- oh my God. Woo. Could not handle that he moment. Is so hot. He's definitely growing into that face and head. Right now, he is growing. Oh, my. Same with um, Hugh Grant. As he gets older, he grows out of his, like, boyish. Oh. Yes. But, um, yeah, I'm trying to think of other. I mean, there's Pump Up the Volume, obviously. Like, other, like, radio movies, radio DJ movies. or What's that Dolly Parton one? Straight, oh, straight Talk. talk. Yeah. Straight Talk with James Woods. <laughs> Just watch Straight Talk. 
Why not? Great. You know what? Do a radio, radio double. I retract, my, I retract my answer completely. You should absolutely watch Straight Talk. <laughs> I just like how the three of us said it in unison. Like yeah. there was, it's always on the mind, apparently. <laughs> Straight Talk is always right Straight there. Straight Talk is such an important movie. <laughs> Truly crucial. And what's that one she did with Queen Latifah? The it's like one about the choir? Yeah. Show that okay. one as an extra for anyone who's left after you show Fisher King and Straight Talk. Who's left? Give him a little Queen Latifah Dolly moment. Do, Julie, uh, do you watch double features? Like, what if you were to like program like a perfect double feature? Oh gosh. Um, I mean, I would. I listen. I one of the one of the things I love most about your show is the curation of it. Like, I think that it's such an exciting, sexy like <laughs> <laughs> project to pair things. I think it's so cool and interesting. Um, I will say, depending on what mood I'm in, sometimes like two movies is too many but i will also you know there is something like magnificent when you're in that like mid to late 80s um like spot those are tight those are if 90 minutes like they are yes. they are short and sweet so um i'm um i don't know like is there is there something to pair with mannequin that's just straight horror like um Oh wait, you said mannequin. Yeah, well, um, like isn't aren't there like mannequin horror movies or shouldn't shouldn't there be more if there aren't? Isn't there like a noir movie where there's a bunch of mannequins? Is that a is it a Kubrick movie? I think it's literally called Mannequin. Yeah, from like the yeah. 30s. But there's also that that one Kubrick movie where there's that like scene of the of the pe the guys fighting in the mannequin section of like the department store. Oh, I don't know. Is that that's not the killing, is it? Maybe it's the killing. I think it's the killing Ooh. or killer's kiss. One of the Oh, I feel like it's an early Kubrick. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I got that. Killer's wrong, kiss. Casey, jo Casey oh, jumped there in. We Thank go. you. Yes, yes. And so, I, of course, thought you were thinking of mannequin like um, Meshach Taylor mannequin. I am. Oh, yeah. okay. I'm saying what would pair with it? What horror movie could we pair with it? I mean, I know there's that Twilight Zone episode where like they the mannequins come to life once a year. Oh my God! Have you? Did you guys ever watch? The, that did you ever see that movie that Molly Ringwald and Andrew McCarthy made after Pretty Horses? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You saw that. Uh, that was like that to me is like a dark Andrew McCarthy role, and I was like, hmm, that'd be interesting to have this like yeah. really bubbly, yeah. buoyant Andrew McCarthy yeah. in Mannequin paired with this like role where he's like a he terrible... can do it all. He's really good. Yeah. He's he a director. He's a dreamboat. I have loved this so much. You are, you are going to, I think, appreciate our double feature for next week. You can count on me and Basket Case. Ooh! <laughs> I am just, I'm so grateful for you for coming on and helping us answer this question. I'm delighted to be here. And I am just, just always excited to talk to you ladies about anything and everything, movies included. Well, we're going to have you back. That is yes. for sure. And I can't wait for the, the next Timothy Chalamet movie. We'll all get yeah. together and <laughs> go out for a full meal before the end of the before the credits come up. But let's think about the What is the perfect mannequin pairing? This is what I pose to the audience. What would Ooh, go yeah. well with that movie that is appropriately horrifying? Um, Beautiful question. We'll put it out I there. Can't, can't wait for the answers. And we will make sure that you see them. Thank You're you. You're the greatest. Thank You're you so greatest. much. I had such a blast. Thank you for having me. I cannot believe we got you on the show. It's so I great. I, I, any, I anything's possible. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. Oh, love thank you, you so much.
Ah, oh, love Julie so much. Oh my God, love her so much. I'm so glad that she finally came on because we had been wanting her for so long. So, and this is perfect. It's perfect. I just, I also love that she made me. She made me really think about uh, something that is one one thing that's on my Uber list this year is to kind of pick a director and really learn and watch all of their films. And so she reminded me in the talks about, you know, talking about Terry Gilliam, that that's something I want to do. And I like that. It's a smart, smart thing to do. Yes. And uh, I had to press play on Brazil a few times, but then I, I eventually made my way through and was all the better for it. So, you know, sometimes with some directors, it do be like that. But you know what? She's awesome. She absolutely loves movies. So I'm so glad she came on the pod. Me um, too. So we have a theme this week that is something that I think we've been wanting to do for a long time. I have been curious about it since you pitched it. What is our theme this week, Danielle? Our theme this week is, didn't you take the Hippocratic Oath? <laughs> well, didn't you? There are so many movies with doctors or people in the medical profession that I'm like, wait, isn't there like a rule against this? It's not a law, but it's a rule that you say in order to become part of this community. Yeah, I actually had to look it up because I was like, I, I mean, I definitely know what the word is. And I, I, have the, I have the general concept of it. But I was like, it comes from like a Greek thing, right? And then... Yeah, from Hippocrates. Yeah. And I love that, like, the, the, the first, you know, the one of the first phrases is, you know, do no harm. Like, like you said, like, I'm not going to go out. I'm going to go out of my way to try to heal people. Like, that's why I'm here. I'm not just going to be doing experiments and shit. Right. Like, exactly. they had to put that in writing. Because <laughs> <laughs> they like, we don't trust these motherfuckers at all. Like, look, you get this guy in front of an open corpse... You don't know what's going to happen. He's going to start pulling stuff out. <laughs> well, and you know what's really funny is that when you did pitch this theme, I was like, I know she wants to talk about her movie. And I know you got a lot to say about it. And I, I almost want to give you the entire episode to do that. <laughs> because I have so much to say. It was oh a God. first watch for me. <gasps> I was Motherfucker. Come on. I mean, as much as I love Amaldivar, I never saw this one. Well, and of course I think not. We, it came out in 2011. I know. I'm, tr <laughs> I'm trying to rectify that. But I have seen a Maldivar movies in the 2000s. So it's just this one. I don't know why I never saw it. I had really no reason to not have. But I gotta tell you again. In the grand fucking tradition of this podcast where Danielle brings a movie from the 2000s, it is stressful it gives you nightmares. <laughs> it's all the same shit that I always say. Always oh say. <laughs> always. <laughs> and that's and why I'm I, like, yo, let's forget about my movie. Let's just talk about this movie. But what I love about this movie, <laughs> what I love about this movie is that and I love about this this part of the podcast where I'm like bringing movies that you haven't seen. It does not matter the genre. It could be horror. It could be friendship. It could be anything. And you're like, that was stressful. And <laughs> I had fucking nightmares. Notes on a scandal. I thought was like, all right, she might not have seen this one, but yeah, no, you're like, it was stressful. <laughs> nightmares. I mean, you bring I the stress. Like, I think you actually brought a stressful comedy 
once. I we've done a lot of episodes now. I can't remember some of them. That's how how long we've been doing this. I'm starting to forget, and that's how old I am. But I'm just like, oh shit! Like it, it is literally like the vibe every time. Like, oh, here's a stressful movie. However, what I think is actually great about this episode is that. And I don't think this was necessarily planned because, again, I hadn't seen your movie, so I right. didn't know that when I picked my movie that there's actually a link to your to your oh, movie. Oh, yeah. There's a yeah. lot of crossover, a lot of common themes. Totally. And Almodovar has even said in interviews that he was a, he's a huge fan of your movie. Yeah. And that this movie is kind of taken from in the same vein it kind of yeah. inspired inspired him yeah and there's there's obviously going to be a lot of similarities for that reason but i also think too both of these movies are just really it is that sort of like medical ethics issue that are, that are yes. coming up in both where it's not it's not just like a straight up like he's a mad doctor who has no soul it's like i don't know it's complicated right yeah sort of oh yeah you know that's why they have these oaths. That's why they have these rules and guidelines. And the medical community is constantly looking. Again, this comes up in my movie as well. But the medical community is policing itself. I mean, because there are constant shifting ethics. And I think that they're always trying to get a baseline so that those cases that are remarkable are few and far between. That there's kind of a baseline for like, here's how we treat people. And, you know, occasionally we might have to stray I mean, even hospitals have ethics boards. Like it is a big deal issue. Yeah. So I was very interested in 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 this as a theme because I think a lot of the doctors that we're watching today in these films. I mean, I just watched um oh god, what's the one with Alana Glaser and Justin Theroux and she's it's on Hulu and she's pregnant and and I'm like, didn't you? And oh, Pierce Brosnan is in it. And I'm like, didn't you take the Hippocratic Oath? Like, it's just <laughs> some some shit's always going on lately when there's doctors in movies. And I'm not talking about Dr. Giggles, although he is absolutely part of this equation. <laughs> yes. Dr. <laughs> Giggles. Thank you for bringing Dr. Giggles to how many episodes have we done? Have we done 70? <laughs> have we done 60? And we've only mentioned Dr. Giggles now. Thank you for putting that under your hat for whatever reason. I'm thrilled to do it. And <laughs> let's let's get into your movie. Yes. <laughs> I mean, so, there's nowhere to go from Dr. Giggles, so we might as well get into the episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, so my movie for the theme, Didn't You Take the Hippocratic Oath? It's a movie from 1960. It was directed by Georges Franjou, and it's called Eyes Without a Face. Starring Pierre Brazer as a depraved scientist who used beautiful women in the most frightening way imaginable. So I want to ask you, Danielle, real quick. Did you take a foreign language in high school? I did. I took French. Did you? Okay. Yeah. Why didn't I not know that? Je, um, je, je parle un peu français, mais c'est très mauvais. We, uh, we, oui, oui, bien sûr. <laughs> I don't know if that, that makes sense. Because lo- I took... I took I took it in high school, then I took two years of it in college, Ooh. in like undergrad. Um, but I am terrible, terrible at it. So just know that when I'm talking about this yeah. movie, okay? no, I can I can read it better than I can speak it and understand it for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, curious. I never knew. I don't know why I thought you took Latin. I figured you're a Latin girl. That's because I worked in a convent 
as a teenager mm. and I did learn Latin from the priests. Well, there you go. You didn't have to take it to school. You learned it from some priests. Because they were like, we cannot believe people don't know Latin. And I, I was like, oh, well, Father Ed, um, it's because nobody, <laughs> is, like, nobody cares in Warwick, New York about Latin. Say for you, because you're a genius. Uh, we love it. We love that you took Latin from priests. That's, again, you've surprised me. <laughs> Didn't know that. Very, um, very impromptu <laughs> lessons. <laughs> well... This will come as no surprise to you, probably, but yes, I did love the Billy Idol song, Eyes Without a Face, when I was a kid. And I mean, yeah, yes, it made me want to watch this movie. I have to say the entry point. Yes, it was the entry point into this movie for me because I was like, "Ooh, this video, what's happening here? It's like when Metallica did one. We've talked about this when they oh, showed yeah. Johnny Get Your Gun. Shit, we talked about this with Enya and Far Away. <laughs> How, how those songs trick us into watching the films. I love the Billy Idol song, Eyes Without a Face. It's like a shoegaze mm. meets punk song. It's awesome. But um, this movie is an absolute classic. I just have to throw it out there. Like, I mean, I think it's part of the horror canon, certainly in the international horror canon for sure. And it is so influential. I mean, I've I just was watching Guillermo del Toro re, like he was talking about it on the Criterion channel about how it, it influenced a lot of his work and John Carpenter with Halloween and of course mm-hmm. Amaldivar, your movie you're gonna talk about in just a second. But um I've seen this movie many times. Um I try to watch it. I, you know, I do the thing. I'm I know we talked about this with Julie, but um I do a little Halloween movie watching. I just, I have to. I just get in that mode where I'm like, ooh, I just want to watch a bunch of Halloween movies. And uh, this is one of them. I try to keep this one in the rotation every couple of years, but I actually hadn't seen it in about, probably about four years. Yeah. And I gotta tell ya, <laughs> after my big hospital stay a few years ago and covid and just a lot of other medical trauma that we as a world have experienced over the past few years. I'm like, this movie freaks me the fuck out now. And, you know, and it was never like, it's not never the movie where I'm like, it's not like a traditional horror movie to me in that way. Like I'm never like jump scared or anything, Mm -hmm. but it's just this like kind of, um, there's like a tension between this. uh, It's grotesque, but it's also, lyrical and beautiful and that i think you know happens sort of like intermittently through the film but it's also like the hospital stuff really hit me hard this time and Mm -hmm. i mean there was a a part that i'll talk about i really like shifted in my seat um through a lot of the hospital stuff and the surgical stuff which actually has never happened to me every other time that i'd seen it so yeah you know it was so it's a little unsettling to me now i think in my modern age but like but also hospitals and old movies are always just like super bleak have you noticed that (laughs) yeah it's always like water marks running down the walls and you're like damn how are they healing people in here (laughs) this shit is gross (laughs) shit if i knew how to edit i would do like a freaky fucked up scary old movie hospital supercut where i'd put like you know all of the world war ii movies of like (laughs) people in like 800 beds like 
I I would put in the the scene from Georgie Girl where Charlotte oh. Rampling has a baby and there's like 500 other babies in there and she's just like smoking <laughs> cigarettes. Like, I hate my child. Like, I just, old movie hospitals freak me out. But anyway, I want to talk a little bit about Georges Franjou, the director of this film. Um, he he basically was a co-founder of the Cinémathèque Française along with Henri Langlois in the 1930s which is essentially one of the greatest film archives in the world. And they screen movies like every day. And it was essentially the nexus of the French new wave. So he's a co-founder of that. And he had actually made a series of pretty, (laughs) pretty uh, intense documentaries. And he had made one film before he did this movie, uh, eyes without a face. And he had a very tricky time making it because of the film censors in Europe at the time. And even after it was released, it was seen as pretty controversial and it really grossed some people out. Uh, Like I heard something like, or I read something where all these like Scottish people were fainting or something. (laughs) Look, Scottish people fainting at Eyes Without a Face. Um, Wow, really impactful, I suppose. Yeah, but then also there was a shitty like american dubbed edited version that was called the horror chamber of dr faustus so it was and that it was definitely more like a drive-in thing versus you know french poetic realism or you know so i don't know i i think it's just an interesting if you actually go and read about eyes with eyes without a face and read about like what was changed from the book that was based off of and um sort of how they had to get around the like hardcore stuff that was in the book like the gore and stuff like that it's interesting you'll just have to read about it um but a one sentence synopsis of my film is a doctor stops at nothing to give his daughter a new face after hers is destroyed in an accident for which he was responsible Mm-hmm. So that is the synopsis of the film. So the doctor in question in this film is named Dr. Genessier. I think that's how you say it. Genessier. Mm-hmm. Dr. Genessier is played by the French actor Pierre Brasseur. He is the head of his own medical clinic where he sees actual patients, but he also has this like secret laboratory with like a secret Scooby-Doo villain door where he experiments on dogs and birds, which is very upsetting, (laughs) obviously. And he's in there trying to come up with this breakthrough medical procedure where he can successfully transplant a face. Okay. And the primary motivation for this is that he has his daughter named Christiane, who was played by Edith Scope. And you find out that she's been in a she's been in this horrible car accident where she survived, but her face was badly damaged. Okay. And the accident might have been her father's fault. And at the very beginning of the film, you actually meet Genessier's assistant, Louise, who is played by She's an amazing Italian actress named Alita Valli. And she was actually in The Third Man. She was in Suspiria. And she was in this incredible exploitation movie called Killer Nun. 
we got to talk about that at some other time. Non-sploitation. <laughs> we got to ah. talk about non-sploitation, girl. If you you worked in a convent, you got to oh, yeah. know about non-sploitation. So, sh- so Louise, at the beginning of this film, is driving this body to a river, and then you realize it's it's the body of this young woman, and and she drives to, to the river and dumps her in. It's a very like Laura Palmer esque type of scenario, right? And when the when the police eventually find it. They actually call Genesier and and they know that his daughter had been missing, right, from an accident. And he IDs it as Christian's body. Okay. Now we don't really get why this is happening at first, but then we actually meet Christian a few scenes later where she, it's, it's like her back is towards the camera and she's being encouraged by Louise, the assistant, to put on this admittedly very creepy mask that basically looks like a rubber uh, woman's mask with the eye holes cut out, sort of. It's kind of like a Phantom of the Opera mask, but like the whole thing and not just the one part, right? And also, like, I noticed in this viewing that, like, the, her lips move a little bit in it. Yes, yes. Ooh, I don't uh, like that mask at all. Yeah, the, I, I was like, could you not little do a lip wiggle? Because that just makes it... <laughs> It's very uncanny valley. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Like I was having a hard time with it. Um, and I have I've had many, many years to think about like also like what is up with it being on like a headband thing? Yeah. Like and I, I'm just like, I don't want to a headband mask seems so uncomfortable. I don't know if I'd wear that if I were her, but you know, whatever. Okay. Christian then is legally dead, I guess, because her dad ID'd her body as this girl on the river so it follows right that she is now just a prisoner in her father's lab while he has been unsuccessfully attempting to give her a face transplant okay and here's the thing okay great great on you dad for maybe trying to help out your daughter but we quickly find out that the way he's been trying to get faces is very nefarious and involves Louise basically coaxing and kidnapping young women who all have like dark hair and blue eyes, right? Back to the lab and then and then they chloroform these girls and then they just steal their faces, like operate their face off. <laughs> and <laughs> I will I have to say this. When when Louise is out on the town doing this, when she's out there like trying to get these young women to come back to the lab. The music that's playing each time is not the theme to Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> it's creep. It's like a creepy <laughs> Curb Your Enthusiasm. Like half it's- circus, half Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> I'm like, is there is a clown gonna <laughs> hop out at me, or is Larry David gonna appear on screen? Like, what is happening? truly had to google it because i was like certainly the theme from curb your enthusiasm is not the weird creepy kidnap music from eyes without a face it's close but it's not it's not it but also just knowing that it sounds crazy to me now like i'm like wow she's just out here like trying to kidnap girls and there's this like crazy larry david-esque music playing and it's just it's kind of unsettling right she she is an unsettling character too because she's kind of 
she's so deeply devoted to Genesier and you're like, why? And then you kind of figure out why, but she's so devoted and she's so masterful at tricking these young women into coming back. And there's this one young woman who comes back with them and she hears the dogs barking and she says, you know, how many dogs are there? And Louise just says like, you know, oh, see, you'll be well protected. And it's like, that is not what I asked. Like, She's just bobbing and weaving and dodging questions so she can get these girls back to this weird haunted castle. Listen, I, this was a point that I was going to bring up with you because, first of all, okay, you are brought to the woods, essentially. Like, this place is far the fuck out from Paris or wherever she goes to school, okay? It's this, like, woodsy kind of gothic villa mansion type place. And she walks up the stairs and there's literally, like, 20 dogs barking and i don't know if you're like me where i'm like i would literally never go in a house where 20 dogs are barking like it no no it, it's it always seems that like nothing good would happen in a house with 20 dogs barking like just wouldn't yeah well because like do you need 20 dogs for protection because that's not a good sign like are you running some kind of weird um vet like off license vet clinic like there's so many is the dog fighting happening? It. Like, what's yeah. happening in this house? What is happening here? But, yeah, I mean, and that's the thing about Louise is that she's kind of the perfect, she's just kind of got this, like, she has this, like, string of pearls around her neck, which you find out later is because it's, like, basically, she, I, actually, I'm going to say right now, I'm going to spoil this movie because it's old and I'm going to, and I feel like I have to in order to talk about it properly, so I'm going to spoil it. Sorry, folks. Um... But, she, you know, you find out that Louise was a former patient of Genesier's and basically he, like, helped her out. He didn't give her a face transplant, but he, like, healed some scarring or something. And then she wears the choker to, like, cover up a scar or whatever. Um, but she kind of gives this aura of, like, she's like a middle-aged woman with a pearl choker and she's, like, well-to-do type. So she's very easily able to kidnap these girls. Um but she's doing it because you're right. She's completely de- devoted to Genesier, right? And here's the thing about Christiane. This whole arrangement that's happening is she's very depressed about everything. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, she was young and beautiful before this accident. And now she feels like this monster who can't face the world. And since she's technically dead, like I said, she's not able to, like, go out like she's calling her boyfriend who is this doctor in her father's clinic and she's just like you know he's picking up the phone and she's not saying anything she just like wants to hear his voice and she's like i just she's telling her dad and telling louise i want to die and i don't like this and i just you know and you feel very sympathetic towards her oh completely because you're like wait they're doing this this is where i started to realize you know when i i started to think i should say that you know, this doctor, he's a bad doctor, but he's also a bad dad. Like, he's doing this against her will for to kind of heal his own grief. Right. Yeah, there's a, there is a moment where I think that the movie does this on purpose. But it's like, you, there are moments where Genesier has, like, moments of humanity, if you will. Like, you know, there's a scene towards the end where he's like talking to this little boy in the clinic and you're like, okay. And then he does have like tender moments with Louise and the and and his daughter. But you're always in the back of your mind being like, what's going on really? 
Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, are you massively guilty? Are you just like here to fulfill your fucking like Dr. Frankenstein dreams or like what, mm-hmm. what is, what is it that you really want? But I, I, but I think that that's where, that's what makes the movie good to me is that you're yeah. never, you're never sure a hundred percent all the time. Totally. Right. And so I have to talk about what's probably the most talked about sequence in this entire film, which is, the one where he's actually removing the face of one mm-hmm. of the girls that they kidnapped. And like this scene is really long and it's methodical and it's very quiet except for like Genesier's breathing. He's like breathing really heavy and he's like sweating. And the film is kind of like cutting back from close-ups of that and him to like the blood sort of like seeping out of like the cuts that he's making around this girl's face. It's like pretty gnarly. Still pretty fucking gnarly, yeah. I have to say. 50-something-odd years later, like, you're like, wow, this is really intense. And this was a scene for me that I was like, oh, shit. Like, you know, <laughs> oh, like, I don't know what I feel about this. I don't like doctor surgery stuff anymore. But you know what? Great for a horror movie. So, <laughs> <sighs> so I did some rhythmic breathing, and then I felt better. But not for long. Because here's the thing. (laughs) This is wild to me. So after this scene, you're like, oh, that girl is definitely dead. No, the fuck she is not. (laughs) You realize that the girl that they just took her face off, she is still alive. And may I add, is wearing this super cute outfit. Like, (laughs) it's like this sweater and skirt set. And But she's totally cute, but then has... Her head bandaged. It was like the the woman from the brain that wouldn't die was like an yeah. entire bandaged head, and she. So it's like she's like basically alive, and then put in a cute outfit. But and then, she doesn't have a face. She doesn't have a face. <laughs> like, like if you're trying to do face transplants, that is what's always going to happen. Is you're always going to be robbing Peter to pay Paul. You're robbing this face to pay that face. <laughs> Like, is that part of the deal? You're like, all right, we took your face for my daughter, but now I'm going to go take another face for you, and then I'll take another <laughs> face for them. And then you're just working your till, till you die. There's never going to be enough faces. It's like a face pyramid scheme. It's, yes. it's, it's really hard to see where it ends. But, you know, the craziest part, too, is that this girl ends up, she has an untimely death, unfortunately. And it's at that moment you're like, Jesus, man, like, when is this going to stop? Like, when is it going to stop? And then it cuts to Christiane and, and her new face that she just received. And at first, it's fucking gangbusters. You're like, he did it. What <laughs> he a genius. Did it. <laughs> yes. Now go out there and have your, like, Wizard of Gore presentation to all these people. Like, you did it. You're the best doctor ever. Um, <laughs> but then... And this scene is one of my favorite scenes in the movie because I think it's like super chilling and clinical and like yeah. kind of, is that it doesn't take. And there's these different shots of her face literally dying. It's like it like deteriorating. And you're just like, nope, he didn't do it. And uh-uh. fuck. Like, how many times has she been through this? Like, you're really like, yes. what the fuck, you know? And that is the most fucked up part of this movie to me, is that as you're watching all of these young women get kidnapped and, you know, have their faces sliced off and they're tossed in a river when they die, 
that is its own sad tale. But right at that moment when you're watching the necrosis and of her face and this face is not taking and you're looking in this actress's eye, Edith Scobe, and you're like, wait a minute, how many times has Christiane been through this? How many times has she, like, these people had their face cut off once. How many times has she had a face grafted onto her fucking body that wow. didn't work? Yeah. I Ooh. mean, it, yeah. And I and I think that's why, uh, I, uh, this is why I want to spoil the movie, because ultimately I think the ending is kind of like, it's kind of like a beautiful lyrical ending to that point, mm-hmm. right? Which is that basically Christian's you know, had it. And because right after this happens, Genesier and Louise are back at it, kidnapping women. And she's just like, I'm done. And basically what happens is this: she's like literally watching the new victim on the table and she frees her, basically undoes her straps, frees her. Then my favorite part is she goes down and freeze all the dogs and birds. And it's so wonderful and beautiful. And I'm like, fuck yeah. I love that she did that. Right. But then right as she does this, her dad comes waltzing into the lab. And guess what? Those dogs fucking rip him to shreds. Without hesitation. (laughs) And I'm just like, wow, that's exactly what should have happened, man. Fucking like, you know, those dogs who have been like fucking, you know, abused and, you know, experimented on are like, we're getting this motherfucker tonight. And <laughs> it happened. And then the ending, the last scene of the movie, because that part is actually pretty brutal. Although you do see the actor wearing like yeah. the little like pillow arms, you know, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. underneath his clothes. You're like, oh, he's got pillow arms. I'm sure he'll be fine. Even though those dogs are like, really ready to fucking tear them up. And I also watched this on on the Criterion channel and um, Edith Scobe said that they put actual meat underneath his clothes so that the the dogs would be like attracted. She's like, yeah, that must have been weird for him to have like dogs ripping at his clothes. And I'm like, yeah, because there was actual steak jammed into his clothes. (laughs) That is definitely like a Johnny Knoxville jackass move for sure. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, those dogs looked like they were ready to fucking really kill the actual actor that was in that <laughs> suit. But um, but the last scene of the movie, I think, sums it up really perfectly, which is that, you know, Christian walks into the woods and she's beautiful. And she's wearing her mask and then she's wearing, you know, her Grace Kelly robes that she's been wearing in the entire movie. And it's beautiful. And she's got, and she's got the birds kind of hanging onto her shoulders. And it's just lovely and haunting. It's like sad, but also like she's liberated and you know and it's just that thing where you're like wow this movie is like really it's beautiful but it's also like again sad scary like and when i say scary again it's not scary in that like texas chainsaw massacre kind of way it's it's scary in that like yeah there's some really like clinical kind of like gnarly parts to it and um yeah, I just think it's like such a moving film and I'm I totally see why it's gotten you know, I totally see why horror directors have gravitated towards it cuz it is beautiful and also just sort of like it does that balance really well of it being kind of like gross but pretty and you know that kind of stuff, but I I love it and um yeah, such a good flick. 
It's a great pick. Great pick for sure. And like I said, the inspiration for for my film, um, yeah. so much, so so inspired by. Um, but I will say, I think Eyes Without a Face flew so that my film could take off into the damn stratosphere in a fucking rocket. <laughs> God, to say the least. My movie for the theme, Didn't You Take the Hippocratic Oath, was released in 2011. Uh, it was directed by Pedro Almodovar. The screenplay is by Pedro Almodovar and his brother, Augustin Al- Almodovar. Uh, and it's based on the book Tarantula by Terry Jonquette. And the movie is The Skin I Live In. Who? Boy. I. This is, again, much like Shame the Steve McQueen movie Shame. This is one of those movies that I think will will have me end up on a watch list at some point because they're like, okay, she bought this on every platform. And <laughs> Fuck, you, you know, did? <laughs> she owns a physical media and... She bought like an old iP- iPod Touch. She has it exactly. on that. What a creep. Just, just for that movie. Like, there, I will be on a watch list at some point for how much I love this film. Um but it is so wonderful. So this movie is, it's got a a wonderful cast. This is the first time that he reunited with um, Antonio Banderas after the first film they did together like 20 years earlier. Antonio Banderas plays Dr. Robert Ledgard. You have this wonderful actress, Elena Anaya, who plays Vera. And Marissa Paredes plays Marilia. Um, and then you have this other great actor, Jean, Jean Cornet, who plays Vicente. Um, and it's just this huge cast, like the way that he usually does. I definitely, I gave a lot of background on Almodovar when we first covered um, the Pain and Glory episode from last year. So if you want to go back and listen to that episode, I go into a lot of his background and who he is as a director. Um, but he works with certain themes and he works with certain actors a lot. And he just has, he's developed a real visual style um, by doing that. And so Marissa Paredes, for example, if you watch this film and you're like, wait, she looks very familiar. Yeah, it's because she's been, <laughs> she was in so many of his movies. She was in High Heels, uh, All About My Mother, The Flower of My Secret. Like she's she's a constant actor. She's one of his his women. So my, this, this film won a ton of awards, uh, won a Golden Globe. Like it just won a ton of awards. And like I said earlier, it was absolutely inspired by Eyes Without a Face. Uh, and my one sentence synopsis of this film is a renowned doctor who lost every family member he had in one horrible accident or other hosts a mysterious guest as his work becomes fueled by grief and obsession. So when you start this movie, you're, again, like the thing that I love about Pedro Almodovar is that his stories, his narratives unfold like an onion. And so you're dropped into the middle of this story, and then he will help you figure it out. But it's compelling from the beginning, because you have no idea what's going on. It's very compelling. And a kind of more simplified synopsis of this is that uh, Dr. Robert Ledgard leads a very quiet life in a high-security villa. Uh, and he shares his house with Marilia, who's his longtime housekeeper, and Vera, who's this young woman. She lives in a bodysuit and a locked room. So right away, you're like, why is that room locked? Who is that person? What is this outfit she's wearing? 
And why is everybody like cool with it? Like they've all developed a routine around this and we don't understand what's happening. Um, you don't know who anyone is. And the young woman, you feel like it could be his daughter. It could be his wife. Um, you're just not sure who, wh- what the relationship is between these characters uh, as well as what the movie is about. So, yeah, I thought she was like some weird performance artist that he had like commissioned to live in his house. Like a, the artist is present or something. I don't know what I was like, what is going on with this situation? You're like, is Cirque du Soleil just like testing how it shows? (laughs) Cirque du Soleil boot camp. You're right. (laughs) Like what is happening here? (laughs) He's like lengthening their leg muscles so they can do all those spins or something. Like what is going on? But it's true. It could be anything. You don't know what is going on. Yeah, yeah. It could be anything. And so I thought that the easiest way into this film without kind of spoiling too much is just to tell you who the characters are and how they intersect as we meet them. So Vera Cruz is this, again, beautiful young woman who's in this locked room. And she is making some like Nightmare Before Christmas Sally-ass dolls with like ripped fucking, (laughs) like ripped fabric. And it's she's obsessed with Louis Bourgeois. Like she's just making these very bifurcated isn't the word. It's like, she's making these very, these dolls that are completely stitched together and ripped apart. And she's doing it somehow like with nail files and weird tools because she's not allowed to have sharp things. So again, this mystery is like, who is she? Why is she in this room? Why can't she have sharp things? Is this like a mental health facility? Is he that kind of doctor? What's up? The other thing about her is her space. So it's this very sparse room, but there are all these strange markings on her wall. And she's always kind of doing yoga and she keeps trying to kill herself. So when we first meet this character, she's trying to kill herself by using the sharp edge, um, the sharp paper edge of a book cover to like cut her wrists and cut her body. At that point, Dr. Ledgard saves her. And now we get to learn about Dr. Ledgard. So Robert specializes in skin transplants or transgenesis. He became obsessed with skin transplant after his wife was really badly burned in a car accident. And he names the, the synthetic skin that he develops after her. So his skin is named Gal. And he has, he has a home lab, um, which is very intense. And when we meet him, he's studying blood. And Marilia kind of puts a, a jug of blood down on the kitchen table. And we see him kind of using it to make this synthetic skin. And then he uses that skin to patch up Vera. And we get the feeling that this is not the first time this has happened. But he's impressed and happy because as he's putting the skin on, he's saying, you know, can you feel this? And he's like running a, a blowtorch over her skin. And she can't feel it. And he traps a mosquito under a glass against her skin. And she, so it's like indestructible skin. And he goes and presents his findings to the medical community. And he tells them flat out, I developed this because this is what could have saved my wife. And when my wife was in this horrible car accident, um, she was very badly burned. And I feel like this could have helped her. So he's very fueled by this grief, but then you wonder, well, is this woman in the room his wife? Because it could be. Right. <laughs> like she's about an age, or she could be a wife or a daughter. I'm not sure. 
But basically, the medical community thinks he is out of control. And they're like, we are going to stop you. We're going to report you. There's no way you're practicing this on mice like you're telling us. We know you. We know you're practicing this on human beings at some point. And he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. But what you learn about him is that after a while, you learn that his wife survived the car accident, but she died by suicide um, after the car accident. And he had they had a daughter who also died by suicide later. Mm-hmm. Um, you also learn that he will absolutely smoke opium with his patients <laughs> and that, yeah. he, that he watches Vera very intensely from a room next door to her room that has a huge screen. And so he's just obsessed with Vera. And so right away, you're like, I don't understand this relationship, who they are to each other, and what their life is together. I want to ask you this real quick, and not not, not to cheapen uh, anything that you're saying about this particular scene, but when when I saw that, screen in his house i was like who the fuck did he get to install this thing like who's the who's the contractor that came in and said oh do you want like an entire wall size creepy peeping tom tv so you could watch this trapped woman in the other room i was like that is fucking crazy this this whole movie could be called rich people get away with anything (laughs) i was like so Danielle may know a, a contractor. I should ask her if yeah, she's like ever thought about having that weird screen. I was like, wow, that is so, it's like wall, the entire wall size. Yeah, it's huge. And it's because there has to, be, there has to also be a camera in her room. Right. Like one of those eyeball in the sky kind of cameras. Yeah. So whoever's installing this knows exactly what's going on here. Mm. And I think he probably finagled it like, oh, you know, I run a clinic and, you know, we have to watch our patients and it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably sure he just kind of slipped him some money and they were like, all right, whatever, dude. Here's some opium. Take that home with you. Have a little opium. Do the plans. <laughs> exactly how I wrote them. <laughs> Damn. So that, that's a great question. <laughs> a great question. There's a lot going on in this house that you're like, huh? How come nobody said anything about this? There's like a whole staff in this house. Yes. Um, <laughs> so what you find out, again, as the movie's picking up steam, is that Marilia runs the house and he's kind of told her to fire the staff because he's getting into his, really deep into his work. And so she does. And you can tell right away she doesn't like Vera. And you're not sure why, but she says cryptic shit like, like you shouldn't have given her that face. It's too similar. So you're like, wait, whose face is this? Yeah. And this is where, again, we get all these parallels with eyes without a face. Because you're like, did he take a face in order to make Vera? Um, Is this like a a father-daughter grief thing? Like, what is happening here? Yeah. And then we're getting into, you know, again, in terms of parentage, Marilia has her own story. So as Marilia is doing her job one day, this guy shows up. And he's it's during the carnival. And he's dressed like a tiger. And he uses a birthmark on his ass to ID himself as her son. And it turns out they haven't seen each other in 10 years. And she's like, all right, you can come up and say hi, but then you have to leave. His name is Zekka, but he pushes his way into the house. And while they're eating dinner and watching the news, it becomes clear that he just robbed a Bulgari store. Like he just <laughs> pulled up, a, pulled a jewelry heist. 
<laughs> and so he's like, oh, yeah, I definitely robbed that store. And I want to lay low here at the house. And Marilia is like, uh-uh, no way. Robert would not go for this. And he's like, oh, well, then I'll, I'll blackmail him into it. And that, again, indicates that there's a history between the two that we're just not sure of. Right. Then Zeka sees Vera on the security screens and he recognizes her. And we don't know how, but he ties up his mom, runs around the house to find Vera, and then he rapes her. Mm. And the scene is grueling. But once you get to a point near the end of the movie, you realize just how awful it is because of other information that has come to light. Yeah. Def- definitely not pleasant. No. Not an easy watch. Um, and then Robert comes home while Vera is being raped and Marilia is tied up. And he just kind of walks in the room and he's looking at Zeka very strangely. And then he shoots him. He just murders him while his mother is watching all of this happen on security cameras. So she's watching her son rape someone and then she's watching her employer kill him on these security screens. So while Robert is out burying the body, Marilia, again, layers of the onion, she starts telling Vera this story. And the story is that Zeka and Robert are actually brothers. And you're like, wait, what? And as it turns out, yes. <laughs> she she had Robert and gave him to the lead guards because the you know Mrs. Leadguard could not have children, so she had him, gave him to her employers. Then she had Zeka, who was like the product of this fling, but he grew up on the streets. And she has this brilliant line, and she she says, um, "I've I've got insanity in my entrails." Oh yeah. Like she just gave birth to these two two boys who could not have grown up differently, but both have gone down such a, a distinctly different but completely wild, similarly wild path. So she is like, this is something that is starting here in this womb. Yeah. Th- I mean, this movie is a ride, obviously, for so many reasons, but like this this uh turn that happens with Marilia and like this reveal. To me, was actually it very much reminded. It's like that Pedro Almodovar like melodrama turn. Mm-hmm. Like it, I think that's a very you know we talked about this with all that heaven allows. Where it's a, it, to me, it's kind of like a sig- signature melodrama that kind of just got tucked into this story, which I very much appreciate. Definitely, but it's wild. It ha- it's wild as shit. Oh yeah. And it helps you come down from what's just happened because you're like, what right. the fuck? Where am I supposed to go from this? Yeah. And. So as it turns out, Robert doesn't know that Marilia is his mother. And Zeka didn't know that Robert was his brother. Look, let's just stop having secret kids, y'all. Okay? (laughs) It will always come back to bite you. It always ends in murder. Stop having secret kids. I mean, 23andMe is going to fucking... It's going to bust you anyway. So you might as well just like be... Admit that you had him. Yeah, it's already you're, it's gonna catch up with you some somehow. <laughs> also, as it turns out, Zeka had come around about ten years prior, and he ran away with Gal. He ran away with Robert's wife, and so he was in the car when they got in the accident that burned her. So that's how he knows all about you know this this part of Robert, and he said he would blackmail him. Like they have this very complicated history together, right? And so you also learn 
through this story that she's telling that Robert and Gal had a daughter named Norma. And one day, Gal, who again is recovering, Robert's trying to save her, um, she hears her daughter singing. And she goes to the window, and even though all the mirrors have been covered just like in Eyes Without a Face, um, mm-hmm. she sees her reflection in the window for the first time. And she's so jarred and scared by what she sees that she throws herself out of the window and she dies by suicide in front of her daughter, who goes into treatment like directly after that. Like Norma Dude. immediately goes into treatment after that. Yo, that scene was so freaky. Right? That, that scene freaked me out. <laughs> pa- part of the really- anxiety. Part of the anxiety, of course. Part of the stress. And it is. It's stressful because it, at, at the one on the one hand, you're like, wait, if she threw herself out of a window, who is this woman? Vera. It's definitely not her. Yeah. So like what? So you're thinking about how do these puzzle pieces tr- put fit together? But then you're also learning so much more about Robert's grief and what's fueling him. Right. And after hearing this story, Vera decides to go to bed with Robert. They try to have sex. It doesn't work out. And and but you're kind of again left wondering like there are these these questions that just come up at the end of this whole first act, which is like, is this love or is she playing him? Um again, who is Vera? What is motivating Robert? And where is Norma? Right. So then <laughs> we get into a little more backstory. And this is the event that kicked off this whole story, and it is wild. So Robert and Norma were at a wedding out of town, and it's clear that this is her first time out in a long time, and she has a ton of mental health issues. And there's actually a very sweet scene. Um, she meets this, this guy, Vicente, and you know they kind of go outside, and as they're talking, he's like, man, I'm so high. Like, are you on any pills? And she just rattles off a list of her antipsychotics. And he's like, oh, that sounds heavy. <laughs> wow. like she, she's not on ecstasy. She's on like heavy duty antipsychotics. Right. And so Robert looks up and he sees that Norma's gone. And again, she's like a teenager at this point. She's older, but she's been very sheltered, very sheltered. He goes and looks for her and he finds her in a state of undress or dis- a disrepair, I should say. Like her shoes are off, her cardigan is off. And just as he sees her, this motorbike just kind of rides by and zooms out of there. And as he's walking through this, like, den of iniquity where everyone is apparently fucking, (laughs) then he finds his daughter laid out on the ground. And she wakes up and screams bloody murder. And the only assumption is that she has been raped. Right. So then we cut to this seemingly unrelated story of Vicente who's this aspiring designer who works at this shop with his mother and his best friend, Christina. And he tells him like he's going to this wedding later, but it's just to dance. And then when he hops on his motorbike, we realize, oh, he's the would-be rapist. So from his perspective, we get the other side of the story, the true side of the story, which is that Norma took her own shoes off. She's kind of wild and free. Um, They start making out. But she hears the song that she was singing when her mom died by suicide. She hears that song playing at the wedding and she starts to freak the fuck out. And Vicente slaps her and she passes out. But then he carefully dresses her, but he does not rape her. But he does get the fuck out of there. 
So when Robert comes across this scene, he assumes the worst. And Vicente is like, I don't know who this girl is. I don't know what just happened, but I'm out of here. Later on, Robert finds Vicente. Because again, Norma's been re-institutionalized. Robert finds Vicente, runs him off the road, and kidnaps him and chains him to a wall. And this is a point where if you haven't watched the movie yet, you should watch the progression of spaces that Vicente is in. Because then when you come back to the beginning of the movie, you're like, oh, shit. His mother knows he's still alive, but the cops think he's cops think he's dead. So nobody's looking for him. Yeah, they think that he like crashed in the river, right? Or Exactly. You know, yeah. So they find his bike, which has been tossed into the river again, much like Eyes Without a Face. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So they, his bike's in the river, but they haven't found a body. So they're like, well, he's probably float, floating somewhere. Like, we'll find him eventually. But his mom is like, no, he's until you show me a body, he's not dead. And no one is looking for him. But this, you know, we cut to Norma. She's afraid of Robert. In her mind, he's the one who assaulted her. Um, and then she dies by suicide the same way that her mother did. She throws herself out of a window. So in the wake of her funeral... Robert has some friends come over and they're like, are you sure you want to work today? And he's like, yeah, yeah, definitely. And what they do, he gives them all this false paperwork and then they give Vicente a vaginoplasty. So Mm. there's a deeper meaning here in that he removed the penis first. But this is also the moment that we realize that Vera is Vicente. Right. And the marks on the wall are all the days that she's been held captive, which is like six years. And she constantly says she wants to go home. She says it right after the vaginoplasty. And Robert says, we're just getting started. So you realize in this moment that this man has exacted some weird revenge on Vicente for six years Mm -hmm. by completely changing his sex and his body. And so we're left with these questions of like, and again, I'm not going to ruin the movie beyond this. It goes so, it goes on and it gets so much (laughs) more wild. But I love that this film makes me ask so many questions. So one of the questions is like, Robert's clearly a monster and he's driven mad with grief. But do you think he decided to make Vicente his guinea pig before Norma died? So like, is he doing this as a punishment for what, Vicente did to Norma or is he doing this as a way to get his wife back in some form like there you question I question his motivation throughout because it's not entirely clear there's something very sadistic about what he's doing but he's also doing it in a way that benefits him romantically I mean I I don't know if it's because I was informed by eyes without a face when i saw this because again i just saw this for this episode i definitely thought it was a revenge thing like i was like oh this this has to be some really convoluted revenge plot for Mm -hmm. the daughter thing i agree i agree because i think when you look at the rape scene for example robert was able to enact revenge on zeka in a way that he never was able to do with Vicente. Right. So he's able to kill Zeka and save Vera, but he wasn't able to save Norma. He wasn't able to save his daughter. 
And he also, by turning Vera into a woman, and he, again, like that weird look he gives Zeko when he's standing there, mm-hmm. it's really strange because you realize that Vera was able to, from from Robert's perspective, Vera was able to feel what it felt. She was able to experience what it felt like to be raped instead of being the rapist. Right. So it's a kind of a strange, like he didn't plan it, of course, but it's kind of a very strange roundabout way that it really does work into his revenge plot. But that, I don't know. I'm deeply fascinated. Have you read the book that this is based off of? I'm just so no. curious about what uh, about what that could be like, you know? I know, I, mean, I know that the movie veers wildly away from the book. Okay, got it. I don't know where or how, but I know that it's it veers from the, away from the book in the way okay. that only Almodovar can do. Yeah, yeah. I'm. Uh, th- I mean, honestly, like it. This was so. There was so much going on in this movie. You know, yeah. like when I said it's a ride. I mean, like we talk about this film is a ride, but it's like th- I mean, it really is. I mean, there's just so many different layers to it. Yeah, uh, and it's there, and it's also just sort of there's unpleasant thoughts like it's just sort of like having to question the motivations of of people and especially doctors which i think is a part of what our theme is all about is just this idea of like the hippocratic oath and just sort of having this like implicit trust about doctors normally but then it's like this stuff like you see these two movies and especially your movie my god and you're thinking like wow just having to like pick the brain of that just so fascinating to me and like yeah i was just curious about the book because i mean obviously i i I went down the rabbit hole of reading about this film the moment it ended because i was like (laughs) uh what did i just see and like i said i'm a big fan of amaldivar so i'm like okay well i know a little bit about like sort of what he brings to the table in terms of being a director and a writer but this felt like there was something more that i really wanted to to chew on a little bit so but i didn't go have you read or seen him talk about this film like yeah what there, does he there think? are a lot of great interviews about it um and again because it won so many awards like you, you get to see him talking about it a lot and it's hard to to sum up in you know like one statement but it's worth if you have watched this movie or are going to watch this movie it's worth looking up those videos um and looking up the interviews of him and the cast talking about what this movie um, meant to them. And he doesn't really even kind of come out and expressly say why he made it. It just, you know, it's something that sprang out of his creativity and he was trying to use it as a way to kind of bridge a gap for a moment. Um, again, yeah. it was made in 2011. But what I really appreciated about watching it now in 2022 is that when I first watched it, I found myself asking questions about and hoping that he would answer um, questions about like what is this movie saying about being transgender yeah. and what I'm realizing in 2022 is that this isn't this movie is not a direct commentary on being transgender at least not in the way that we have like a modern cultural conversation going about being trans to me this movie is more about misogyny because the sex change is forced on Vicente it's not his choice and the worst thing Robert can think of is turning Vicente into a woman. So is that because he thinks women have a specific tie to grief 
like Gal and Norma did, right. like his wife and daughter did? Is it something else? Is it something that allows him to obscure who he has really become? Because he's not he's not facing someone who is in his direct image. He's turning them into something that, again, I feel like he thinks women are... He it, this his experiments and his his medical expertise is not used in a way that he is revering women. It's more that he is he he sees them as like the perfect palette in some yeah. way. And so yeah, I think that this is for me. It's more of a comment about misogyny, yeah. and especially it's more of a comment about forced femininity. Like Vicente used to love women's clothing and making women's clothing and styling windows. And, you know, now Vera cuts up all of all of her dresses and Norma wouldn't wear dresses either. So it seems like this this conversation that the movie's having with itself about forced femininity and misogyny. And why does this doctor see women as a plaything, like a palette for him? Right. And I, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer. No, totally. Uh, I mean, and that's part of like what I think I found fascinating about just kind of like his apartment or his villa, wherever he lives, just there was all those paintings in, in it with all these like nude women. And he just kind of fetishizes the women, the female body. Yeah. But they're all faceless, right? Like he's got totally. all these body images, but they're all faceless. And you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like and, there's and, no personality. Right. And just this idea that he has to watch this person that he's trapped in his own home in this very like garish kind of outrageous way mm. you know it's not so much like you have like your little spot nanny cam like the right. way that it is in the kitchen i mean he's got this giant wall thing where he's like he set up a chaise lounge in front of him and he's like oh look at my art look at yeah. my creation and you're just like god damn that is like fucking insane and it's wild. I think it, it, but I think it goes to your point exactly about about the misogyny of this character, right? Mm -hmm. God, yeah, this was a fascinating movie. Isn't it a good one? <laughs> really, it really is. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, to, to me, I it, like when I was making, I was trying to obviously say, like, try to find the sort of like influences from my movie when I was watching it and there's quite a few and I you know and that is the weird like the thing that the movie kind of shares is the father daughter thing yes which is so there's an unsettling nature to it in both films yes yes because it's like this weird protective instinct that they have but they're making their daughter so miserable in the process of trying to protect them that that is how their lives in one case end and in the other case become so small and withered that she wants to die. Like, it is just weird. Like, I think, I don't know, maybe we pick this for a Father's Day episode in a couple of years. We revisit these two <laughs> <laughs> because it's a relationship I don't know anything about. I've never met my dad, but I'm like, these men are doing monstrous things in the name of parenthood and they are fucking it up royally. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also just there, there's moments of like, how are they processing this information about their daughter's uh, femininity, about her looks, mm -hmm. about her virginity, about her whatever it is, the purity right. of the daughter. 
and how do they how are they processing it in their own ways and it feels like it is that like weird unsettling there's like there's this part of it where i'm like wow like i can see a dad being very protective of his children no doubt about it i can see a dad being very protective of a daughter absolutely but it kind of veers off into strange directions in both these situations and yeah um, yeah, and if I you want to get like super academic about it too, it's like there's a moment where you realize both of these young women have experienced specific and distraught trauma right at their sexual awakening, like right at the moment of their sexual awakening, yep. and how their dads then step in to not necessarily fill that role, but they take over the care of their lives right as they're about to become sexual beings. Yeah. They, they're they basically, you know, kind of uh, running interference in some yep. way, you know? Uh, wow. I, uh, I expect that paper to be on my desk <laughs> next week. <laughs> Double, I swear, double-spaced. I, I could write like a 33 and a third book about this movie. Like I could write about and talk about this movie all day long. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and he, it's a, just another example of why he's one of my, my favorite directors. Well, listen, I, I could sense that it was something that you wanted to talk about because I just was, it's like, well, you were kind of like, am I going to use it for this theme or that theme? Like, well, how are we, how are we tucking this one into the schedule? And, I'm so glad that you picked the um, the theme because, yeah, I mean, it, it was it's such a good lens to sort of see this movie in, and then I accidentally picked the movie that influenced it, so yeah. it worked out. It worked out great. It worked out yeah. great. Now I, I'll just say for the record too, like I never wanted to be a doctor. I immediately looked at the the medical profession went. Too much school, too much science, like not for me. Definitely not a science gal like that. But I think it is fascinating to to have, it's just sort of like from the outside in, you're like, oh my gosh, being a doctor is complicated in that really, uh, in that ethical way. Yeah. You know? Every and, day is a new experience of potential wrong decisions or yeah. fatal decisions or... Yeah. Ooh. Well, thank you. I'm so glad. Do you thank you. This is a great <laughs> episode. I'm so glad we got to talk about these movies. And I when I say that I can't wait until next week's episode, I am not <laughs> being at all hyperbolic. <laughs> I have been waiting for this episode for months. Yes. Like you with your film for this week. The my film for next week I own on multiple platforms as well, <laughs> so I'm probably on a list. I'm pretty sure I have it on all formats, <laughs> on all devices in my home. Like it's it's a it's a fave. So I'm really excited. the The minute that you suggested your film <laughs> to pair it with, I screamed laughing. I screamed laughing. <laughs> do, do you want to tell them what the movies are? <laughs> Fuck yeah, I do. So the movies for next episode are You Can Count On Me from 2000 and Basket Case from 1982.
I'm, I'm not even going to encourage you to guess the theme. I just want you to watch these movies and marvel at the brain that brought these two movies together. <laughs> and then listen in with us because it is going to be a great, great episode. Oh, my gosh. I cannot oh my wait. Cannot wait. Well, listen, if you would like to email us for any reason, we are at I saw what you did pot at gmail.com. Please, please, please send us questions for the bonus episodes. Uh, we have a lot of fun. I mean, honestly, like we say this all the time, but we we truly have a blast. They're very cash, very loose. We love doing them. Um, but send us uh, emails for it. Stories about movie experiences awkwardly watching films with your family working in movie theaters or in video stores like you know forcing your film club to watch basket case and you can count on me together like whatever you got send it to us i saw what you did pod at gmail.com like are, are you having an irreverent uh, arbor day party <laughs> that you need suggestions for also we have a p.o box so if you want to send us handwritten letters uh, millie will open them <laughs> And then she will report back to me her findings. Um, (laughs) But if you find us on our social media, which is at I saw pod on Instagram and Twitter, I'll see those. Uh, And you know what? While you're there, why don't you tell a few friends to follow us? And then why don't you tell even more friends to follow us and leave us a five star review? Because it really helps. It sure does. And listen, we got merch in our shop at exactlyrightmedia.com and let me just tell you something we haven't done this in a while but you know we would have people send us pictures of themselves like zhuzhing up our t-shirts like in a very cute way like maybe do a little t-shirt clip maybe do it a little hemming or something Uh, we'll we'll post them we'll repost them if you got if you got our merch and you look cute in it by all means. Absolutely. And and remember, please, that you can listen to new episodes one week early on Amazon Music or early and ad-free plus bonus episodes by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. I love the Wondery app so much. Most of my favorite podcasts are on that app. And it's so easy to use. It's so intuitive. Our bonus episodes are under the extra tab. And um, we're just happy to be part of the Wondery, Wondery fam. Yes, we are. Well, listen, Danielle, as always, it's been a fucking pleasure. So glad to be doing this podcast with you. Me too. What a blast. What a blast. Love a it. Blast. See you next week. <laughs> take the Hippocratic Oath. <laughs> Even if you work in a bagel shop, take the Hippocratic Oath. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced and mixed by Casey O'Brien. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogle. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hartstark, Karen Kilgareth, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Pod, And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Listen, follow, and leave us a review on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can listen to new episodes one week early on Amazon Music or early and ad-free plus bonus episodes by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app.
Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.